0: podglomerate original. Hey, trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey... The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, the Carbon Copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine, to the housing crisis, to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, the Carbon Copy explores how climate change and the energy transition Connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to The Carbon Copy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, OutTravel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condi Nass' former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow OutTravel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts.
1: Uh, something I really wanted to talk about on this show was the idea of uh, watching out for like false victories or something that you think might be uh, the completion of your nar- of your personal narrative arc without actually being your personal narrative arc. This is Joey Clift.
0: He's a writer and comedian and someone who I've admired online for some time.
1: So I was excited to hear his thoughts on the whole, writing your own life story stuff. This originally tracked for me as a concept um, and I want to say it was 2011, I just finished my first assistant job, was looking for, new, for more work. So, like, uh, for me, I'm a huge fan of professional wrestling. I loved, I, I've loved WWE for a long time. I've watched since, you know, probably I was like six or seven years old. And um, a big dream of mine for a lot of my life was to be a writer for WWE. There are people that write the storylines, write the promos for the wrestlers and stuff like that. And it's a job that like I applied for a lot, you know, kind of throughout my life. And it was this really interesting experience for me of like knowing that I was put up for and interviewing for what for over half my life was my dream job. I kind of figured, oh, I I want to interview for this job just to see like what this alternate reality version of my life would be if I took the job. You know, also it's like, you know, what is what 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 even is interviewing for my dream job like? So I, they flew me out to Stanford, Connecticut, which is where the headquarters uh, was. I got a selfie of myself in front of their Andre the Giant statue in their <laughs> lobby. Uh, I had uh, five to six hours worth of interviews uh, over the span of a day, uh, which was just like chaos defined where it was like, I think I spent an hour and a half locked in like a chair storage room because they didn't have any other place <laughs> that they could put me in. They and, locked you uh, into it? <laughs> I mean, they didn't like lock, but I mean, it was like... There was like a key card and it was like, it was clear that like if I left, I would have to be escorted by the HR person or whatever. Yeah, uh, it was just a very insane, chaotic experience. And at the end of it, they ended up offering me the job and I turned it down. You know, if I told myself when I was like 16 that I would be in a position where I'm being interviewed by the WB for a writing job and I'm like, maybe not going to take it. 16-year-old Joey would be like, "What's your problem, man?" But like present-day 2021 Joey, it just kind of struck me as like a lot of my goal in the entertainment industry right now is to create, you know, work that helps marginalized groups feel seen. And writing for WWE for me um would be kind of like, you know, I'm sure a cool job, but also a false victory in that like is my 14-year-old dream of wanting to be a WWE writer um, more important than maybe the thing that made me want to do that as opposed to being a comedian growing up. Um, And that's not seeing people like me on television and in the media. So, you know, like I I was in a fortunate spot where I was up for this WWE writing job while I was also up for writing um, on a, a new Netflix show called Spirit Rangers, which I'm writing on right now, which is the, first ever United States animated series with a Native American showrunner and creator, Chris Valencia, uh, an all-Native writers room, um, you know, just like Native talent up and down the bill, working on all sides of the production. And um, it, it struck me while I was interviewing of like, okay, like, is what I really want to write for WWE or is what I really want to create The heroes that I wish existed when I was growing up. And am I going to be able to do that while I'm writing, you know, the new catchphrase for John Cena to sell more t-shirts or whatever? Um, So, you know, I I ended up turning down my dream job when I was 16 to get what my dream job is now. I'm sure there are a lot of people that are just like, why did you turn down a job? Which, like, I totally get. But I guess that for me in the moment, that felt like a big personal narrative moment of, like, reinforcing for myself of, like, what is actually important to me, um, as opposed to, like, taking a a false end or a false climax or whatever.
0: Hearing Joey's thoughts about living in a story made me reflect on the year of my life I spent recording this podcast. Joey's journey is much more admirable in comparison, but the lesson he learned were showing up in my own life, my dream, my goal was to lose weight and hike over 200 miles through the Sierra Nevada mountains. But when I lost 100 pounds and got to the trailhead, I had to relearn why I was out there. I had to discover what was far more important and what was underneath my motivation to hike. I thought I wanted to lose weight and go on an adventure, but I was learning that what I really wanted was not that simple. I'm Andrew Steven, and this is Trail Wade, a podcast about hiking outdoors and the lessons learned along the way. I knew spending a month in the mountains would have an effect on me. I knew I wanted to heal from the pain of losing my mom to cancer. But I didn't know what would actually happen being in nature for so long. The plan for today included hiking over the infamous Forrester Pass, a 13,000-foot notch in the mountain known for its complex and dangerous snow-covered route. There was no going around. There was only one way to go. Thankfully, our bodies were finally starting to feel different. We began to sense the positive effects of being in nature for such an extended period of time. The JMT and Pacific Crest Trail, a five-month-long through-hike from Mexico to Canada that shares some of the same trail as the JMT, converge at Crabtree Meadow and follow the same route to Tuolumne Meadows in Yosemite. Crabtree Meadow was where Rocky and I camped instead of hiking to Mount Whitney. And from here to Forster Pass, the elevation slowly grows over the next two days. And we hiked from peak to valley, mountain pass to range below. Leaving the foxtail and lodgepole behind, the granite giants we walk on somehow become more and more evident. As we hiked, the anniversary of my mom's death was ever-present in my mind. But somehow, out here, things felt different than when I was grieving at home. Was nature healing me? I wasn't sure what was happening, but it was happening. Being in the forest felt like exactly where I needed to be. I know my, my thoughts are all scattered and disjointed, but I don't know if, if you've had an experience like this where you're so far out, like there, there, there's not a road that we could get to where we're... Like, the only way to be where I am right now is to hike several miles. Perhaps several days. And that's a pretty interesting feeling. On one hand, it could feel very alone and like you're so detached. But on the other hand, it also feels like you're so present. I don't know if that's cliche. We eventually came across Bighorn Plateau, an eerie and strangely awe-inspiring vast expanse, with views stretching miles in all direction, from the Great Western Divide to Mount Whitney. I'm used to experiencing this kind of vista from a peak or prominent pass, but on such a large, flat expanse, it made us feel like we were indeed in another world. I felt alone, but not in a negative way. Sort of like how sometimes you can feel positive claustrophobia surrounded by giant mountains. Maybe this is just another part of nature. Feelings that, in another context, might usually be upsetting are somehow welcome and beneficial. Being in such a vast open expanse at such a high elevation created a feeling and sensation I had never felt before. Tracing the trail and climbing switchbacks, we eventually reached Tyndall Creek stop for the night.
2: Um, So the thing I look forward to, which I guess a lot of people don't look forward to, is setting up camp. Because it signifies that we're done walking for the day. Uh, It's just like, oh, I'm done. Like, yeah, it's a little annoying to have to set everything up and tear it down. Set it up, tear it down. But I don't care. It means I'm done walking. (laughs) I've done my work. Um... And then I think I have a moment in the morning where it's like, ugh, I don't want to pack everything up. Like, that is harder for me. But then I I don't know. I tend to be more optimistic in the morning and feel better about myself and life and just everything. And then I slowly decline throughout the day, (laughs) which would make sense since we're working hard.
3: Yeah, I think mornings are the toughest. That just first push to get yourself out of the sleeping bag,
2: yeah out of the tent. It's cold. there's a shit ton of mosquitoes,
3: yeah, there's easily. I think I said a hundred yesterday there was this morning there was probably two hundred just waiting
2: on it's the outside of our tent. warm it's kind of funny to watch them try and like bite you or suck your blood through like multiple layers.
3: yeah, we it's put like, on a bunch of layers because it's cold, but it also means
2: they don't bite. And they seem very confused.
4: <laughs> this episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. When learning how to
0: backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable, butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small, folded-up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on, and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem-free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com. wait That's better BetterHelp.com. W E I G H T. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards. Hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle, to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, The Roots of Route 66, and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards
4: wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Leaving the following day, we left Tyndall Creek and started the final climb to Forrester Pass. The forest makes way for an almost desert-like landscape encased in a spiderweb of snowmelt creeks. So today we have forester Pass. We're going to climb about 3,000 feet in elevation. Right now we're at about just over 10,000 feet elevation where we camped. And we're going to go down a little bit and then up to 13,000-something feet for the pass. Probably going to be snow. Probably going to be a little bit of uh, scrambling and sort of route-finding. We broke for a longer-than-usual lunch while our lungs were acclimating to the higher elevations. We chatted with a hiker couple who were attempting the PCT. They had hoped to be much further along by August. But this year's high snowfall dramatically slowed their pace. As a side note, many PCT hikers had actually flip-flopped or skipped this section of the Sierras, in an attempt to come back in a few months when more snow might have melted and the weather might be better. It was around 2 p.m. when we arrived at the final switchback climb to Forrester Pass's summit. The talus, rocks the size of golf balls to grapefruits, made the trail fade into the surrounding rock. If you weren't looking, you could easily find yourself stepping off trail and the tight switchbacks added to the possibility of accidentally getting lost. Rocky hiked on ahead, moving faster than me, as we were both eager to make it over the pass and into camp, ready to end our day and eat our freeze-dried dinners. It was a struggle, but a good struggle.
3: I'm about a little more than halfway up Forrester Pass. This might be the hardest thing I've ever done. Onward.
0: Some areas of the trail were covered with snow. And we had to hike blind, checking our GPS every couple of seconds to dictate which direction to go.
3: There's no trail here, it's snowed over, not sure which way to go. There are two passes that looks like it could be. I'm going to have to hike. Blind by GPS. Here goes.
0: Slowly, feelings of uneasiness began to creep in as we hiked hard through the eerie geology above the tree line. Soon, we passed a plaque embedded in a boulder commemorating Donald Downs. Because of this area's remoteness, the challenging surroundings, and the high elevation, Forrester Pass was the final section to be officially added to the route of the JMT. On August 26, 1930, four men, including then 18-year-old Donald Downs, were hurt while using dynamite to carve a path through the granite. A boulder fell, crushing Donald Downs' arm. The men were evacuated to the nearest town. Downs, however, was taken on stretchers to a remote cabin because of his condition. A doctor performed an amputation, but Downs passed away a few days later from complications of surgery before he was able to be evacuated. This plaque was an ominous reminder of the potential for danger as we pressed on. Rocky climbed higher and I needed to catch my breath every few moments. Without obvious places to rest, I found myself at times sitting directly on the trail, using any step as a makeshift chair. I find myself wondering if one of these steps might have been blasted by Donald Downs himself.
3: Hopefully, they'll record. It's 2:30. Still heading up the ascent for Forrester through some snow and sun cups. Pretty late. It's not very late, but it's late in the afternoon to do an ascent. But we were going slow. Hopefully we'll get up before the sun passes to the other side of the mountain he's ahead of me. I have to take a break like every minute to catch my breath. Anyways, break over. Back on rock. Time to keep moving.
0: The switchbacks led to a set of cliffs where it's hard to imagine there's a trail. But as you get closer, You see a thread carved into the side of the mountain. It doesn't make sense looking at it. It was like if MC Escher was in charge of routing the trail. Two hikers caught up to me, one of which was wearing a Superman shirt, perhaps to give him the confidence he needed to attempt this impossible task. He had also hiked the PCT two years earlier, during another particularly high snow year. He recounted how last time he was here, this most dangerous section, the Escher-esque thread of a trail we were on, was completely covered in snow, creating a steep angle they had to traverse. Using an ice axe as a cane-like spear, they drove it as deep as they could into the snowbank, and held onto it like a handrail, whose ability to hold meant life or death. Today, most of that snow had melted and, in comparison, made this small section seem less difficult. Hearing Superman's account, I started to wonder what lay on the other side. We didn't have ice axes. We didn't have crampons. We had aluminum trekking poles and rubber-soled shoes. Following the trail, through a crack in the wall, I was suddenly there, on the summit. Rocky greeted me as I stood tall and out of breath at 13,153 feet. Higher than I've ever been before. Moments like this were what I had envisioned, what had helped motivate my weight loss and training the year back. This was the postcard moment we had missed on Whitney. This is why I was out here. Atop the ridge is a sign letting us know we had just crossed between Kings Canyon and Sequoia National Parks. Looking north, we saw the Palisades Rage and Mather Pass, the next highest crossing, eight days away. The north side of Forrester Pass had significantly more snow. Hidden from the sun for most of the day, the heavy snowpack covered much of the trail, and we could only make out footprints from the hikers who had crossed before us. After catching my breath and taking a few photos, we asked Superman for tips on the next section. He mentioned that this time of day wasn't ideal for snow crossing, but we should be okay. We had read about trying to cross snow at that perfect time in the morning, when it wasn't too frozen from the night before, but hadn't yet started to get slushy from sitting out in the day's sun. This late in the day, our biggest concern would be trying to prevent ourselves from postholing. Postholing is the name given to the difficult and sometimes dangerous occurrence that happens when you take a step and your foot suddenly breaks through the snow, plunging your leg to a depth as high as your waist. Most of the time, Post-holing is an annoying and tiresome aspect of hiking in the snow. But you can get seriously injured, twisting or spraining a muscle, and sometimes a sharp rock can lay just under the surface. It can also really throw off your balance, which already isn't great on snow. Falling will hurt on flat ground, but the descent down the north side of Forrester was steep. So a slip or fall could mean cascading down the mountainside for hundreds of feet your body playing plinko with the boulders that broke through the snowmelt. We started hiking down slowly, Rocky and I each post-holing a handful of times. She had to hike in front of me because she said, watching me hike from behind, she kept imagining seeing me fall down the mountainside. The snow was soft this late in the day, and this was not the ideal time to hike such a formidable section of the trail. In hindsight, we should have just camped just before the switchbacks on the southern side, ...and crossed the path the following morning. But we were here now, and we went ahead... ...trying to learn from Superman as we watched him hike on in front of us. Thankfully, we passed the most dangerous and challenging section... ...and could see the well-trodden path ahead. We just had to make our way over. We saw the route that Superman and his friend took... ...but we also noticed a slightly different way to the trail... ...that looked like it might be more accessible... Rocky went first, almost skating down the soft dirt, each step sliding a few feet further than her natural gait. She was now back on the trail, about 50 yards ahead of me. Suddenly, we heard a yell from Superman's direction.
3: I'm recording. I'm going to record what's happening. Just in case, just right now. So we're coming down the north side of Forster Pass and um, apparently there's a hiker down. Someone using their emergency GPS to call in SOS. We are hiking towards where they were shouting. There's no real trail, it's covered in snow. We stopped recording. Sure.
0: Rocky's heart beated faster as she waited for me to reach her. I skated my way down, and we both were scared for an entirely new reason. In shock and not fully aware of what was happening, we yelled back we did not have an SOS or emergency GPS. Was someone using theirs? Was this actually what they were yelling? Did we mishear somehow? We needed to reach Superman to know what was going on. We hiked, racing to catch up, and made it to where Superman's partner was standing on the trail. I noticed their two packs askew, thrown down in disregard. Superman wasn't there. Had he fallen? No. Superman's partner quickly recounted to us that they were scanning the mountainside to find the trail since they were off-route. Something looked out of place. Superman found the footpath, but saw a dark shape just beyond it. Doing a double-take, he asked his friend, "'Is that what I think I'm seeing?' It was the silhouette of a body. As they got closer, they could see a man who appeared to have fallen off the trail. They took off their packs and Superman attempted to climb down to the fallen hiker as carefully as possible. After hearing the account of what had happened, I went into fight or flight safety mode. And with the jolt of adrenaline, Rocky and I hiked as fast as we could down the trail, attempting to find a hiker who might have emergency GPS or SOS. We needed to call in search and rescue. In a blur, we hiked somewhere between 20 minutes and an hour before we came across another hiker. They didn't have GPS, but told us there was a campsite with a lot of thru-hikers not too far away. We pressed on, but before we reached it, we heard the thwop-thwop-thwop of a helicopter, and saw a few people descend on ropes. The mechanical noise felt out of place, but... It was a welcome reminder of the outside world, and a welcomed relief that the fallen hiker was now in the hands of the medical experts. Rocky and I slowed to catch our breaths and reflected. What had just happened? Today was supposed to be challenging, but not like this. Eventually, Superman and his friend caught up to us, and he recounted what happened. He got as close as he could to the body and said he thought he might have heard the man groaning. We had no idea how long the fallen hiker had been there, if he had just fallen, or if it had been days. A couple who had set up camp down the mountain heard Superman's shouts and used their Garmin GPS to call in the helicopter. Search and rescue instructed Superman to get back to safety and on the trail and they eventually started hiking again. That's all we knew. While Rocky and I had planned to hike a little further, we were both exhausted from the physical strain and emotional toll. We made camp at the location we were told about just moments ago, and tried to process the events we just lived through. Hiking this trail was supposed to be healing... It was supposed to help me deal with the pain of losing my mom. But instead, now, I couldn't escape being surrounded by death. It was just the anniversary of my mom's death. We passed Donald Downs' monument, and Superman had just yelled, Hiker down! I heard the thwop, thwop, thwop of my heart beating faster. He's alive. He has to be. I need him to be alive. What's the point of all this? While all these feelings were swirling around, we found ourselves in the middle of the most crowded campsite we had had yet on the JMT. For most of the hike, we had camped alone. This wasn't by choice, but a lot of campers would typically mean one or two other tents nearby. Here, we were surrounded by five or 10 other groups all of them unaware of what we had just lived. The trail was leaving its mark on us, whether we wanted it to or not. Living on the trail, with all of our belongings in a backpack, surrounded by nature, was having an effect on us. And the pain from back home was healing. For the days leading up to Forrester Pass, I was starting to feel nature's healing effects.
4: Well, you know, look, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years of poetry and philosophy and memoir writing has really documented the experience of people, you know, healing in nature.
0: This is Florence Williams, and she's... Yeah,
4: I mean, I typically use, like, a science journalist and author.
0: She studied the effects nature has on humans.
4: Right, so, like, Wordsworth, you know, lost both of his parents when he was a young boy. He ended up walking you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles across the Alps and across England writing poetry. You just see this over and over again. I mean, certainly a lot of veterans, they write books about, you know, working with grizzlies or doing these long distance hikes or, you know, learning how to surf. They they don't have to be sort of officially therapeutic at all. They, you, you don't need a guide, You don't need a therapist. I mean, certainly many, many people have just to this on their own. And and, and I don't think there's necessarily a high bar to entry. You know, I I don't think um, that you have to sort of sign up for something expensive to be able to find meaning and
5: benefit in
0: it. I also spoke with author Cindy Ross about this too.
5: Like Almost everyone that goes on a long hike is going through something in their lives and they want that time to think about it or or redefine who they are, whether they're getting out of a marriage or they lost somebody or they are dissatisfied with their lifestyle and they want to change. I mean, hardly anyone is out there because they just want to have a good time hiking. <laughs> it's so hard.
0: For many years, Cindy has been meeting veterans who have taken to through hiking to deal with their trauma.
5: Most of the vets That's one of the things that they do deal with on their hike is loss. And of course, a lot of times it is loss of their buddies and not them. So they have the survivor's guilt that they're dealing with. They suffer from a loss of who they used to be and trying to understand who they are now.
0: And she wrote a book about these veterans and their PTSD and how nature healed them. When I
5: was doing the research for my book, I mean, I always knew it did amazing things because it always made us feel fabulous, you know, overall, especially once you got fit. And, you know, there's some of our fondest memories, our long walks. But I was learning all kinds of amazing research, uh, findings like, like actually walking on a trail, Andrew, and having to decide millions of times in a day of how to place your feet and how to cross a stream and how to navigate, you know, rocks, like all those decisions do something different to your brain that create different firing you know senses and 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 help you heal and grow and become peaceful and so it's those decision makings that you don't get when you're like walking on a flat dirt road or blacktop that actually aren't just helping you get more physically fit because of the different terrain but but your brain is actually changing and being helped by making those decisions which you're not even aware of. I mean, that's just one of the things that happens to you out there. So, you know, the trail really does do so much to deliver, you know, gifts that you can't get anywhere else.
0: Here's Florence Williams again.
4: Yeah, right. I, I actually, for well, for the for the book, The Nature Effects, and then later for the podcast, The Three Day Effect, um, I went on two different river trips, wilderness river trips with veterans, groups of veterans um, who had PTSD. So there were, sort of two different experiences. And and for the three-day effect one, a scientist, scientists were actually measuring brain waves, um, you know, sort of during the trip as, as the trip went on.
0: How does nature exposure and these wilderness trips, you know, sort of help, if I can use that word, people with PTSD? I
4: think that's a complex question. And I think there are probably a lot of factors, you know, that go into this. But I I would say that one of the things that really struck me is that at least in the veterans who have PTSD, they're very hypervigilant, right, when they arrive. So they've been through, you know, the theater of war. Now that they're back home, they may hear a book drop and it sounds like gunfire. Their nervous systems are really, really amped up. They have nightmares, you know. They are uncomfortable being in crowded places. They feel unsafe very easily. And so they're very, very, very hyper alert. The way to survive that is to kind of shut down your senses and to retreat and withdraw. So a lot of veterans with PTSD have a hard time with leaving their homes even. It's just too much. They need to calm down their nervous systems. But when they go outside into the wilderness, this really interesting thing happens, which is that gradually, you know, over the course of many days, it starts to feel safe to open your senses back up, right? So you're not hearing gunfire, you're hearing birds. You are feeling the breeze on your cheek. You may be sort of able to, in some ways, like reclaim the somatic and bodily sensations that you need to feel again you know, in order to heal. And that gradually helps also relax your nervous system, but not in a way that forces withdrawal. It's in a way that kind of forces engagement so you know when when you're like calm and relaxed in these outdoor environments you know you food may taste better you may sleep better and, I, and it was really fun to watch this i mean you sort of come out of your shell a little bit and and you know there was a lot of laughter and singing and social bonding that i think really um survived past you know the end of the trip like a lot of people stay in touch And that in turn reinforces the more conventional therapies, you know, that they're doing back home. So they're supporting each other through their sort of talk therapy. So in this way, I think, you know, the wilderness therapy or just wilderness experience can be this great kind of adjacent therapeutic modality. Uh, And it it was really cool to see.
0: I think I intuitively knew of nature's effect in my own life. It was one of the reasons I wanted to get out on the trail. But I wasn't actively thinking about how it would affect me when I was planning my through hike. Is it is it oversimplistic to sort of say, like, maybe it's it's the way we were meant to be or created or or however you phrase it, like it's 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 part of our being that we relate to?
4: I don't think it's oversimplistic. I mean, I think it's actually a sort of complex idea, you know, that that we are living right now in kind of a mismatch you know with the way our nervous systems you know are designed to work our our nervous systems are designed to sort of you know experience moments of stress and then recover from stress right and i think you know as humans we we become sort of good at doing that over over you know millennia millennia and millennia
3: mm-hmm.
4: by you know being together by singing by looking at the fire by looking at the stars by looking at the sunset i mean there were so many elements of the way that we lived that helped kind of bring us back right to a place of comfort and now we're living these modern large sometimes isolated lives where we're not able to just recover from from this kind of daily drip of stress that we get so i mean i think it's sort of you know it's complicated and and we're certainly we're living in a different habitat right from the way our our bodies evolved and, you know, I mean, we have data about this. So we know that, for example, sounds of airplanes and motor traffic increase our distre- the release of stress hormones. We know that it puts us into a little bit of a fight or flight response in our nervous system. Um, we know that, you know, pollution, like particulate pollution, uh, is linked to dementia, you know, as well as a number of other problems. We know that um, these sort of monochromatic linear landscapes are, are associated with a state of stress also, and not really a state of, of comfort or relaxation. So there's data. We also know that people who live in urban areas are more likely to have a host of psychological diseases, like anxiety. Their amygdala, so the fear centers of their brains, are more engaged. They live in a more hypervigilant state. So there's certain mental illnesses that that also live with these kinds of landscapes.
0: So if we're all living in cities, obviously we can we can go out and find nature around us, but thinking past that, like, do we need to redesign our urban areas?
4: Well, you can interpret the data different ways, but I think certainly the way the EU is is starting to look at this is, yeah, you know, if we care about preventing mental illnesses, if we care about um, preventing stress-related diseases, we should definitely think of redesigning our cities. There are, there are these really interesting large-scale epidemiological studies looking at health outcomes and how close people live to green space all over Europe, you know, where they have really good health data that they can map you know, on on these um, maps of green space. And it's pretty dramatic. I mean, they definitely have found higher mortality the farther you get from green space, worse birth outcomes, you know, in babies, the farther you get, more cancers, more morbidities. And and this is, you know, after adjusting for socioeconomic
2: factors. Mm
4: -hmm. So, uh, you know, in countries that have socialized healthcare, where prevention is really a major goal. They are paying a lot of attention to access to green space, access to urban areas, improving woodlands and parks, making sure that different neighborhoods have that access. Uh, It becomes a social justice issue, of course, because there are always parts of the city that that have worse access than other parts or smaller parks. And And we're seeing that now, you know, during the pandemic that, that this is really an issue because when we do go to parks, we aren't comfortable unless we're socially distanced, right? And so the fact that neighborhoods that are more people of color have parks that are half the size, you know, of neighborhoods that are white. So I think this is all kind of coming to a head right now too. and We're feeling really stressed and, and we also need that, you know, understand that we need to have bigger, higher quality areas.
5: you know these guys have have lost faith and hope in in lots of things including themselves you know a, a lot of a lot of what they're out there for is to learn how to forgive themselves and saying you know i did the best i could they did the best they could we're all doing the best we can and it's got to be enough and and i i have to figure out what to do with the rest of my life now to make a difference because i i am worth worth it and my life is worth it the important thing is you know i wrote this book to share the veterans stories they all told me their story for the purpose of helping other veterans that are struggling so that they might know there's a way out of their darkness and not to think about suicide but to think about going for a hike instead and to save some lives so Out of all the nine books I've written, this is the most important because it can change their lives and and help save them.
0: My journey was supposed to be therapeutic somehow. I was supposed to get away from the death in my life. I was supposed to heal. I wasn't expecting to find death on the trail.
5: Well, I'll tell you a story about what happened when I came back from the PCT. I, both my parents died young, and my dad smokes, inhaled cigars his whole life. And so when I came back from the PCT, he got lung cancer, and it went to his brain, it went to his heart, and everyone in the family was like, oh my God, they just couldn't deal with it. And since I just got back from the trail and I wasn't working yet, I hung out with my dad the most. And, you know, if he wanted to try to sell me the backyard, cause that was where his brain was, you know, I talked to him about it and my siblings and my mom were so upset and couldn't deal with it. And I said, first of all, dad inhaled cigars his whole life. Why is anyone surprised that he has lung cancer? And number two, I just came from a place where there is constant cycle of life and death and And you see decomposing trees that are nurse trees and there's little tiny pine trees coming out of the rust colored decomposing pine. And it's like life comes from death and it's a cycle and it's natural. And I don't want my dad to die either, but he's going to because he inhaled cigars his whole life and he has lung cancer and he can't get better. So I don't want him to die and I'm unhappy just like everyone else, but I could accept it better. Because of where I just came from, you know, out west forests are burning and it's just death and devastation. But then you see, you know, fireweed come up and and new growth and it keeps going. So I had a different attitude about life and death because I had just come off the Pacific Crest Trail than the rest of my family. So that was pretty startling for me.
0: When I started this podcast, I naively thought starting the hike was the end of my narrative arc. I thought the growth I needed would happen before I set foot on the trail. Day one of the hike would have been the final scene of the movie. The credits would roll and the Andrew character would be healed and changed for the better. This hike, if it was part of this, would maybe be the sequel. But being in nature, I found myself ripped back open, exposed, and learning that healing was just the beginning would be a lifelong process. I already had one trauma to deal with, I wasn't ready for another. It wasn't until much later on the hike, we had pieced together that the medical team determined the fallen hiker had passed away, we think a day or so earlier. His planned itinerary had him further along the trail. He was an older man, and we believe he may have had a cardiac issue that caused him to stumble. But even now, attempting to Google for answers, we can't seem to find any. The story we have is incomplete. Compiled together from short conversations with other hikers, rangers, and intuition. It may be wildly inaccurate, but it's the story we have. Today, I want there to be a bow on this story. I want to tell you the takeaway lesson, and while there are bits and pieces of it, ultimately, I don't really know what or why. It's not fair why one thing lives and another dies. Why him? Why my mom? Why not me? We all hold ourselves accountable for things that we aren't responsible for. We don't all live in war zones, but cities and our lives have their own versions of stress. Everyday life has little traumas and we rarely give ourselves the time to sit with them. We're all doing the best we can. And that's got to be enough. After the experience we had at Forrester Pass, there was an obvious and unavoidable shift. We saw what this trail could do. And we were confronted with the reality that it wasn't just a walk in the park. The following day, we hiked in the silence that can only be found a day's walk away from the nearest town. Unsure of how to feel, we made our way to a junction trail and away from the JMT. We saw our first glimpse of a highway and cars, buildings and electricity, and we hiked our way down from the mountains. After seven days in the backcountry, we exited the trail and waited at a parking lot for a ride to the nearest motel. We were back in real life. Our phones pinged and buzzed. Our family and friends wondered how it had been. We didn't know how to explain what we'd been through. We didn't know if we wanted to go on. Hadn't we already done enough? If this hike wasn't my true story... If this wasn't the actual completion of my personal narrative, why was I even out here? Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Stephen. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Epidemic Sound. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. Thanks to Cindy Ross, whose new book, Walking Towards Peace, is available wherever books are sold. And Florence Williams. You can find her books in podcasts like The Nature Fix and The 3-Day Effect, at FlorenceWilliams.com And special thanks to Joey Clift. You can follow him on Twitter at JoeyTainment and online at JoeyClift.com We're posting photos and more from the trail on our Instagram and Twitter at Instagram.com TrailWeight and Twitter.com TrailWeight, as well as on our website, TrailWeight.co Thanks so much for listening. Padglomerate original.